Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Charles Marshall here on the West Coast version of the Neil Garfield Show. Today is January 17th, 2019. Uh, Welcome. And for those of you back east, I bid a good evening to you. And for those of you out west, good afternoon. Those of you in between, somewhere between good evening and good afternoon. Uh, Today we're going to be discussing all things request for judicial notice related, otherwise known as RJN in the uh, shorthand vernacular. And there are a lot of pieces and purposes to RJNs, and I hope to get into a pretty good overview of the purpose of RJN and really focus on the limitations and the abuses, particularly from institutional players and the legal landscape all across the fruited plain. Meanwhile, I'm broadcasting live from Southern California. This show is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Lies, and LendingLies.com. And it is made possible because of donations from listeners like you. Any amount you're, you're able to donate is appreciated by Neil, by myself, and you can donate directly by selecting the Donate button on the blog at www.LivingLies.wordpress. So first, we're going to get into the purpose of requests for judicial notice. And one other brief parenthetical on that, these are used in all jurisdictions, federal and state. It is a very common legal procedure, just like a motion to dismiss is a a very common legal procedure, and you'll see a motion to dismiss called various things here in California, state litigation. What is identical procedurally and substantively to a motion to dismiss is called a demure, but it has the exact same purpose of a motion to dismiss, and it has the same impact. Now, with a request for judicial notice, 
whether those requests are showing up in litigation in judicial foreclosures where the borrower is almost always going to be on the defense side or in non-judicial foreclosures where oftentimes the borrower will be on the plaintiff's side. Wherever the borrower will be in the litigation, the RJN is often used by the institutional players to go around their ongoing problem to get documents on the record. And their ongoing problem to get documents on the record legitimately, fully, by the evidentiary standard, which is held for hundreds of years in jurisdictions throughout the so-called Anglosphere, what is the evidence that's supposed to come forward in a lawsuit? It's supposed to be competent and reliable evidence. So it's supposed to be competent, meaning supposed to relate to some important, sometimes even subsidiary, but some legal issue in the case. Now, oftentimes courts will interpret what that means in a very broad way. For our purposes, I will simply say that it's important to understand that competent evidence can be evidence which relates to any fact that has a legal implication that could be in dispute in the case. I mean, that's a lot, obviously. That is, that's a pretty thin leading edge that can be used by litigants to get an evidentiary uh, document or testimony or other piece of evidence to be considered competent to relate to the case. Now, what is meant by reliable evidence? Reliable evidence is evidence that has been confirmed in some way. And oftentimes a declaration or affidavit of someone with specific information, someone with specific, shall we say, witnessing of the evidence at issue, that's what's going to be considered to make evidence reliable. And that's why declarations and affidavits are so often used in lawsuits. So there, there are a couple of competing principles here to give, you know, I think the, the, the more complete backstory, which is important to understanding really what, what's going on with RJN. And then we'll cover what's going awry with RJNs. So what's going right with RJNs and, and how it's a useful legal procedure and legal reality is that without RJNs, the cost of litigating, I don't know that it would explode, but it would be even higher than it is. And why is that? That's because it's quite expensive uh, at the end of the day to get in evidence, to get evidence into these legal cases. Uh, when you need such specific um, kind of markers to show that you, the evidence you're trying to introduce is legitimate, is competent, is reliable, is confirmed, meets one of the dozens of exceptions to the hearsay rule, et cetera, pretty high bar in a way. 
I mean, it's both a low bar and a high bar. Without making too much of that point, I will say that a request for judicial notice cuts through all of that. A request for judicial notice allows the litigant presenting the judicial notice, presenting the request, it allows that litigant to reference public documents, publicly available documents, documents which the source of which and theoretically the content of which can be readily confirmed by any independent person. So in other words, it's the publicly available aspect, and it's also that the document is considered to come from a legitimate source. So you can even do a request for judicial notice sometimes of, let's say, a certain article uh, in the New York Times or some other mainline publication. Depending on what you're trying to show with that request for judicial notice, if you're trying to show that the media was discussing a matter about a certain person or that there's a certain document that was under discussion, the fact that there's a newspaper article like the New York Times, that's kind of the far edge of where you could use requests for judicial notice. More typically, you see it with recorded documents. You see it with companion legal proceedings. So you're in one legal proceeding, but there might have been some aspect to the case at issue right now that was already litigated in another form. Or there might be a completely independent case that relates to the same matter in some way. And so that case can be cited, uh, some element or some aspect of that case can be cited for purposes of a request for judicial notice. Oftentimes, if somebody's in federal court or state court as either a plaintiff or defendant, if that person had a bankruptcy at any time, the opposition can reference that bankruptcy to try to create doubt or even discredit the litigant and the current proceeding. And that, that will often be uh, the types of requests for judicial notice that will be granted. So here's where we get to problems. So again, just to finish the principle here, it does significantly reduce cost for litigants. It reduces the time and the logistical problem for all litigants to get documents into evidence. So in that sense, it's a good thing to have this as a, a, available as a, as a vehicle to get documents into evidence. Now, the abuse part comes where particularly the institutional players out there and I should say this is somewhat ironic. I mean, they're the ones often with more money than God. And they certainly are in a situation where they could come up with the money or resources or hire additional staff to get evidentiary matters addressed. Though, as we know, in these foreclosure cases, they often can't come forward with competent and reliable evidence, not real credible evidence that actually ties to the case, and the RJNs allow them to get around that requirement, oftentimes. So what, one of the things that will happen, uh, I, will, I will give a little bit more of a backstory, by the way. Uh, there's also, look, you, you can use the discovery process, of course, to 
get evidence related to your case. And that's one of the main purposes of discovery, to get admissions from certain declarants on the other side when getting those declarations can help bolster your case or hurt their case. That's a useful kind of testamentary evidence. You can get uh, written documentations and you, you get those written documents through the discovery process oftentimes through a request for production of documents and you can get requests for admissions. And so, yes, you have this powerful vehicle called discovery to gather evidence, to sort through evidence, to prioritize evidence. No question that's all useful in any given litigation. Again, the problem though, you're talking about cost, talking about high cost. So yes, look, our side, the borrower side can use these requests for judicial notice as well. Uh, but there's a problem with that. And that's where we're going to get into now the nuts of bolts of how these requests often play out in the real world. So what will typically happen is our side will request uh, judicial notice and I'll, I'll go over how that plays out. And then I will get into what I promised, which was to cover how the institutional players abuse the, the request for judicial notice process. So how does our side use it and how does that become a problem for our side? Well, here in California, for instance, it's very common in non-judicial foreclosure cases for uh, litigants, attorneys, uh, and it's up to a point is good practice. Uh, it does kind of dovetail into something Neil has discussed and I'll segue a little bit in a moment into his kind of streamlined pleading approach, which I think is, is often a legitimate way to get around some of the problems we're talking about. But in a typical non-judicial foreclosure case, on your side, the, the plaintiff side, the borrower side, you're trying to show that, okay, yes, there were recorded documents. I mean, after all, the opposition's going to introduce the recorded documents if you don't. You start the case. So the legal theory for introducing the documents is, look, yes, there was a substitution of trustee. We think it's bogus. We think it's uh, often based on a non-competent, non-reliable assignment, uh, one where the assignor didn't even have legal authority for one of <laughs> – often 50 different reasons uh, from the entity in question had gone out of business years prior, the entity in question had lost their registration with the Secretary of State, the entity in question was suspended from business in California because they weren't uh, paying their taxes. I mean, there are so many ways that an entity could be disabled hypothetically from assigning an interest and without getting into too much of another segue off of that, yes, we've all heard about merely voidable versus void. A lot of those deficiencies are treated as merely voidable, not void. That's beyond the scope of what we're discussing today. So 
what we do on our side as litigants and as attorneys for litigants, particularly, again, in California or any non-judicial foreclosure state for that matter, we actually not just reference the recorded documents. We say, look, here's a substitution of trustee, bogus, no assigning authority. Or we introduce a deed of trust showing deficiencies there or showing certain recitals that justify standing of the party bringing the lawsuit, meaning the borrower in the current case. And we show sometimes copies of the note and we show other various data. Uh, we show uh, various assignments apart from substitutions of trustees, assignments of interest, assignments of servicing rights. There are a number of recorded documents which will typically be referenced. Now, of course, we're not referencing them so that we can tell the court, oh, judge, your honor, look, uh, we don't have a case. Look at all the recorded documents we're referring to. So kill our case now because we're pointing to all the recorded documents. So clearly we're showing the other side has a slam dunk because they've, you know, they've got all these recorded documents on the record. Uh, that's not what we're saying. We're saying, uh, yes, nominally these documents were recorded. And then we sometimes will go into when we oppose a request for judicial notice, we will then oppose the negative interpretation that will come from the other side. But just to finish the point here, the main criteria, and this, this is fundamental, and I am going to discuss it briefly. California has dozens of cases that address judicial notice. One of the most significant, and I often cite it in my own pleadings related to this matter, is Store Media Incorporated versus Superior Court. Now, that's a 1999 case, and it's at 20 Cal, 4th App, 449-4457. And what that stands for, the Store Media case, what it stands for, I'll, I'll actually give you a direct qu quote. Quote, when judicial notice is taken of a document, the truthfulness and proper interpretation of the document are disputable. That is so straightforward. It goes to the absolute heart of what is supposed to happen when you request judicial notice. In other words, you can use judicial notice to show that some event happened or some player, some person was involved with some of them. However, the content and the way you interpret the content of that event, of that document, it's subject to dispute. And again, in non-judicial foreclosure cases, our side is always disputing the documents. That's the, 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 the kind of fundamental of a lot of our, our approach and evidence it's to show that everything the other side is saying, not always literally everything, but I'm sure listeners get my drift. Everything that the other side is saying, we're putting it at issue. We're disputing this. We're disputing that. We're disputing this also. Yeah, these documents were recorded, but we think 
they're a problem for this reason, and then we cite the reason. Here's what happens oftentimes in these cases. Oftentimes what happens in these cases is the request for judicial notice will be used against our side. So whether we do a request for judicial notice or not, the fact that we attach as exhibits oftentimes to our complaint, to our amended complaints, recorded documents, even though we're disputing those clearly in our allegations, the other side, and by the way, the other side is going to do this whether we use this pleading approach or not, but our pleading approach ends up helping their side, which obviously we don't want. So what am I talking about? The other side, the institutional people in these cases will often, they will do their request for judicial notice and they'll say, look, these guys already listed all these documents in their complaint. And by the way, even if they didn't, here are some others that were recorded. These recordings show that these guys don't have a case. Look at all these recorded documents. What are they complaining about? And of course, what I will do from my side is I will oppose the request for judicial notice. And I will often cite store media or a similar case. And I will point out to the court that they need to have a proper vetting of these matters, that we're putting these matters in dispute. Therefore, the request for judicial notice should either be denied or granted only for the purpose of showing that, yes, we're not saying the document wasn't recorded. We're saying that the contents of the document, the meaning of the document, the legal implications of the document are subject to dispute, and we are disputing them. So what ends up happening is then you have these motion to dismiss and you have these demure hearings in California and elsewhere, and the courts routinely say, oh, I see the institutional player's request for judicial notice. I see they're pointing to all these recorded documents, and then they basically take them as proving the truth of the matters asserted in the documents. They take them as proving out the institutional player's case, so they end up having to present little evidence independent of the, those documents to show that, yes, they really do have the legal position that they claim. And this can be very frustrating, to say the least, for our side. Now, there's another way that the, uh, the documents of requests for judicial notice come into play. Um, there is subject to being cited for judicial notice purposes, for instance, major government web websites. That could be anything from sec.gov to ftc.gov, other government websites uh, related to various regulatory purposes. And the way this works in the real world is particularly the institutional players will, they will cite two documents on the website that they think support their case. And they'll act as if, but it's on this website and it's government related 
and it's publicly available to confirm that, yes, this document was put here. What they're ignoring, of course, is that there's a very minimal standard for putting documents up on the SEC or other government websites. These websites are merely platforms for publication. They're not a proper registry, and they neither meaningfully monitor nor validate any documents placed on their site. Yes, there's a standard for determining documents that go on their site. But other than determining that they're minimally related to the subject matter of the government institution and that the person uploading the document has some kind of minimal relationship to, to the type of uh, individual or group that would be putting such a document on the website. I mean, it's, it's a very minimal standard. So then you can pick and choose in litigation. Talk about cherry picking. You could, you could sort of rifle through government databases to the extent that you can get access to them through paying for subscriptions or not. And some will be public, publicly available without subscriptions. It depends on the, the layer and the level of detail that you're looking for. Nevertheless, hypothetically, you could, you could just download documents and then introduce them into evidence through a request for judicial notice and unless a court is scrutinizing this process and coming to the same conclusion that I'm discussing right now, which is, look, maybe we shouldn't be signing off on these documents uh, because they are subject to dispute. And again, this is the fundamental problem uh, with requests for judicial notice, is that it's an almost kind of alchemy where you take something that oftentimes will have all kinds of evidentiary problems or issues, at least potential ones. And then you create the alchemy of saying, oh, this document, everything on its face is perfectly fine. Everything that's argued here really isn't subject to an interpretation. And it's just going to be accepted, the spin that the institutional player puts on the document when they do their request for judicial notice. So in essence, the request for judicial notice process, great on paper, again, it's meant to better allocate resources to everyone, from litigants to the courts, to even support people who are gathering documents and putting everything forward in pleadings, it's meant to make everybody's life easier. It's meant to make everybody's cost of litigation cheaper. However, the problem is that because of the misuse and abuse I've discussed during this show, what ends up happening is that these requests for judicial notice end up ratifying evidence, ratifying documents, that should not be ratified, that should not be endorsed by the court. And it becomes very frustrating because in California, the common way for our side to deal with this problem is to concede that because there's so much case law related to this, store media is just the front end of it. Uh, it we concede that, okay, yes, 
if the request for judicial notice is something like a recorded document with the county recorder, yes, we'll concede that that was recorded. However, the contents of the document are still subject to, to dispute. And remember, just as the SEC and other government websites are not going are not going to fully vet documents on their website, county recorders don't scrutinize those documents. They only do some minimal check to see you have some connection to the property to be recording documents. They don't check the contents other than to see, well, it looks like you are using a list pendants. I guess this list pendants looks like a list pendants and has the basic language. So that's all we have time for today. Neil will be back next week. And a good rest of the week to all of our listeners. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to the Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lies Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.